If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why so nasty? I mean, it's the holidays after all. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and Jeremy Wallace is on assignment this week. Not here, but you can always find his work at uh, HoustonChronicle.com and ExpressNews.com. Of course, I'm at Quorum Report. Dot com. Jeremy's not here, but I do, of course, have our amazing producer, Maya Fawaz, with me. And Maya, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something that has been true for my entire career in any kind of a broadcast setting, whether I was you know, on the radio, television, podcast, or whatever it is. Are you ready? I'm going to give you some wisdom here. It's that the way my producer's face looks informs the way I'm speaking, right? So, so if you look, if, you, if you're laughing or you look, you know, you're paying attention, um, then that tells me this is working. If you look bored, I know to speed up whatever I'm doing and maybe move on to the next thing, right? So, so, so turn your microphone on and just let you know something. Don't abuse that power. Okay. It, it, you're not the only, you're not the only audience for this. Okay. Um, so a lot to get, uh, there's a ton to get to this week. Uh, so I'm sad that Jeremy isn't here, but he's on assignment. This is what happens. Uh, and I'll tell you one thing. During the holidays, um, scheduling things, meetings, podcast recordings, whatever. It's all a nightmare. Everybody's traveling. Everybody's moving around. And I hope everybody has a happy holiday season and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'm going to say all the phrases so nobody is uh, offended. There is some great news uh, here in Texas at a Kelly Air Force Base in San Antonio. Brittany Griner, the basketball star, released from a Russian prison after the Biden administration was able to pull that off. And this has been going on for almost a year. Uh, you remember the case uh, of Brittany Griner. She is, you know, just a sensation in basketball. She's not uh, without controversy, though, right? She has said some things that upset some folks, and we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, but she was busted on what even, uh, look, what one of my friends who is a very conservative Republican said that what she was busted for is ridiculous and shouldn't even maybe be illegal here, right? She was busted for what would be considered just very minor drug charges, right? And if you watched earlier in the year when she was sentenced for that, because it was broadcast live around the world. Brittany Griner sentenced in Russia for basically having a vape pen at the airport. I mean, that's what happened. Um, it was really surreal, like something out of a movie. You, you would think this can't be happening. This is just gross. Well, she landed at Kelly Air Force Base uh, in San Antonio uh, early this morning after President Biden yesterday announced that this deal had been struck. He spoke from the White House. Moments ago, standing together with her wife, Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and uh, and she should have been there all along. That's exactly right. Now, there's also the case of Paul Whelan, another American hostage held in Russia. And there's a lot of false equivalents going on here. There are some people who say uh, that, look, they, they got her out of prison. They busted her out in this one-for-one -one exchange. And the person that uh, the United States gave up here to send back uh, to Russia 
is a, is a bad dude. Let's put it that way. As what would uh, President Trump have said? That he'd call him a bad hombre. He was a um, he he is a, a, you know just a merchant of death. That, that's the nickname that the guy has. He's an arms dealer, an arms dealer. Uh, and, of course, he'll probably go right back to doing that. Um, but President Biden says it was worth the trade. Now, we should say that there was a huge effort, and you probably followed some of this, Maya. There was a huge effort by a lot of activists to try to get her out of prison. And I haven't seen a similar effort from from anyone to do the same for Paul Whelan. It seems like a lot of people are saying it now uh, that Brittany Griner has been released. I think that that's fair. Uh, one of the people who's upset with President Biden about the way this played out is Tucker Carlson on Fox News Channel. You can always count on him. And if you listen to these comments, it's really easy to tell who his target audience is. Um, he suggested that uh, Whelan didn't get help, but Brittany Griner did because she is a black lesbian who hates America. So at this point, we can assume the obvious. The Biden administration chose Brittany Griner over Paul Whelan, the basketball player over the Marine facing 16 years. There was only room for one, the lifeboat, and the Marine got left behind. Well, why'd they make that choice? Well, you should know that Whelan is a Trump voter, and he made the mistake of saying so on social media. He's paying the price for that now. Brittany Griner is not. She's got very different politics. Brittany Griner despises the United States. She's been very vocal about that. This country is so repellent and immoral that two years ago she said, quote, I honestly feel we should not play the national anthem during our basketball season. She hates the country so much she doesn't want to hear its anthem. That's the kind of position that gets you rewarded by Joe Biden. Hate America? Perfect. We'll free the guy who sold weapons to drug cartels to get you out early. So there's that. And then there's the matter of identity, which is central to equity. Brittany Griner is not white and she's a lesbian. Now, those facts might seem irrelevant to you. We hope they do seem irrelevant because they are. Oh, they are not irrelevant to him. I, I can imagine a, a scenario in which he wouldn't mention them. That would mean that they weren't relevant. Um, Houston State Representative Briscoe Kane, uh, who is a friend of mine, uh, tweeted this out. And and look, I, th I don't think that Chairman Kane, who is the uh, head of the Elections Committee in the Texas House, I don't think that he was quite saying what, uh, what Tucker Carlson was saying, but he did say this, quote, Brittany Griner is about to make millions selling books and giving woke speeches. They'll probably name a school after her. He went on to say, quote, good moral character is no longer a prerequisite to becoming an American hero. So sad. Close quote. I would say this about uh, Chairman Kane. He's one of those criminal justice reformers who doesn't necessarily think that people should be in jail at all for small amounts of marijuana. So I don't think he's going as far as someone like Tar uh, Carlson. Uh, but uh, President Biden addressed this criticism head on from folks like this. He said, look, um, what Carlson's saying, and he didn't mention uh, either of these people by name, but but Carlson or Kane, or what, what these people are talking about when it comes to Paul Whelan versus Brittany Griner, the president said that's a false choice. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. We brought home Trevor Reed when we had a chance earlier this year. Sadly, for totally illegitimate reasons, Russia is treating Paul's case differently than Brittany's. And while we have not yet succeeded in securing Paul's release, we are not giving up. We will never give up. We remain in close touch with Paul's family, the Whelan family. And my thoughts and prayers are with them today. They have to have such mixed emotions today. And we'll keep negotiating in good faith for Paul's release. I guarantee that. 
Now, I mean, you may have seen that Paul Whelan's family uh, did say that they were happy for Griner's family that this is happening. Of course, they want to see their loved one come home as well. Uh, so that's their attitude. And I saw some commentary this week along the lines of this, that, hey, why don't we as a country emulate what Whelan's family is doing and say, and say hey, look, we, we are suffering. We want our loved one back, but we're happy for someone else when something good happens for them. Um, th this idea that because a person said some things that you don't like, that they should continue to be in a Russian prison is unbelievable, right? I mean, um, it, it, there has to be a point at which your uh, ideology is not informed by how much other people suffer and thinking that that's somehow good. I mean, you, you could think about it this way. Um, President Biden has proposed, and it's caught up in the courts, he's proposed doing away with some student debt, right? What is the comment? that you hear from so many on the right about that. They'll say, well, I had to pay all my debts. They should have to do the same thing. Um, as if you shouldn't strive for things to be better for the next generation. You know, I don't see a lot of commentary about you know, what that means for the lenders, the people who, who gave all this money to people who they knew would not be able to pay a lot of this back. You know, in this state, in Texas, years ago, you go back to 2002, 2003, the big push from Republicans was what? It was tuition deregulation. It used to be that there, were, there was a government cap on how much students could be charged for their tuition at our major universities. And when they did away with that, I remember the discussion, Republicans privately saying, this is going to kill us politically because we have people in our districts, and these are you know, state senators and state legislators. They were saying there are you know, people in our communities who want to be able to send their kids to school, and if we deregulate tuition, that's going to mean a lot of them won't be able to because the price of a higher education is going to go through the roof. And of course, that is exactly what happened. So we're dealing with that here in the decades later. And that wasn't just in Texas, of course, that was all over the place, which is why things spun so out of control. So the sort of selfish thinking, right, it leads to those kind of outcomes. There is a story out of Houston that is just heartbreaking. And I, I thought real hard about whether to talk about this or not, but I'm, I'm going to. Um, the uh, home of Senator Ted Cruz was visited by the Houston Police Department and Houston Fire and EMS for a report uh, of a teenager with self-inflicted knife wounds. Female patient with self-inflicted stab wounds. They were able to get the knife from her. That's from the EMS there uh, in Harris County. Here's how it was reported on KHOU television that night. I can tell you right off the bat that Senator Ted Cruz is not the person who was injured. His people confirm he is in Washington, D.C. tonight. But our sources with the Houston Police Department say they were called out here on what's described as a self-inflicted cutting call. When they arrived and they investigated, they found that nothing criminal had happened. In other words, no foul play and they left. However, one person was transported to the hospital. They are expected to be okay, according to Houston police. That from KHOU. Now, when something like this happens, you have to be very delicate with how you handle it. Uh, you're talking about an underage person uh, who is obviously going through something that's terrible. Uh, and here's the reason I chose to include it in the show this week. Um, this is all complicated. Cruz's daughter, Caroline Cruz, she has a big following on TikTok. And I guess all the teenagers have decent followings on TikTok. Remember, Maya, I told you I don't even know how to use Spotify. Do you think I have a TikTok account? Well, <sighs> Cruz's daughter recorded this video. Uh, and I think it was seen uh, at least uh, about 500,000 times. Th this was viewed a, a half million times or so. And look, on the one hand, she says she appreciates all the support that a lot of people are saying, hey, we're praying for you. We hope that you're OK. But at the same time, it's been very difficult for her 
to have this be uh, unfolding in such a public way. Hey, I wanted to address this on my own because the media is completely altering the story and causing my mental health to be exploited for their gain. Honestly, I think it's sick that they're using a 14-year-old as a publicity tool. I also don't enjoy the assumptions on why I did what I did. No, it had nothing to do with my sexuality or my father. I'm not suicidal, but I am experiencing some mental issues, and I'm working through it and getting the help I need. Thank you so much for all the support and love. It means a lot to me. But the most traumatizing part of this experience is how public it's been. I'm feeling a lot better, and I'm so happy to have a great support system, but I would prefer if y'all didn't make bold statements about what this is when you truly have no idea what is going on. Now, people made uh, some assumptions about what was happening here because of some of Caroline Cruz's past statements. Now, I'm not in the business of holding teenage girls uh, you know, accountable for political statements, right? We're, we're all growing up, right? We're, um, we're all figuring out, and if you look, I'm still learning as a 42-year-old man, what I think about all of these things. You know, so sometimes I'll be over here on something. Sometimes I'll be over there on something. Uh, and I hate, hate, hate that this happened with her. Um, you know, my daughter is 21. She struggles with some social anxiety. Um, we haven't had anything like this happen, but I can relate. I, my heart goes out to Senator Cruz. And the only thing that I tweeted about it, really, I, you know, I, I put out some of the original uh, reports about what was maybe going on in Houston. My only comment was that I'm praying for her. And that's it. And I think that it's worth discussing publicly, and I hope that it will, uh, not her case in particular, but it's worth discussing what happens with these young girls uh, in particular uh, because of the effect of social media on their mental health. She said that on TikTok. And if you look at the extreme pressure that young girls and young women have uh, when it comes to Instagram, for example, I mean, what, we, we've, we've seen so many stories about this at this point. There's been, there have been studies on this, articles about this, um, and discussions about this uh, you know, in the mental health community where they say, look, what you're doing to young women – it's just over the top. You're setting all these expectations for the way people are supposed to look and behave and what their lives are supposed to be like. And it's all fake. It's all phony. How many people do you know? And I know Maya who they only post the best parts of their life, which are sort of manufactured on Instagram, TikTok or whatever it is. Um, you know, you only, you get sort of the, uh, the cropped version of a person's life, right? All of the bad things are not there. Only the good things are there. Uh, wow, I looked at, you know, so great today. And here, and, and you have all these influencers and, and all of that. Uh, and I think that without talking about the particulars of her case, because I think that her privacy should be honored, that's what she said, but at the same time said that she appreciates all the support, that you have to understand that these cases happen all the time to people who don't have the kind of resources that her family has. Where did this happen? This happened in Houston, in Harris County. And in Harris County, Texas, it's, this is often said, I, I've heard this at the Texas legislature for years, the Harris County Jail is the largest mental health hospital in Texas. That would make it one of the largest mental health hospitals in the United States. And it is often our law enforcement, our police, whether it's HPD, the Harris County Sheriff's Department, um, the police and sheriff's departments around the country and, and, and here in Texas um, that are the ones dealing with the violent, dangerous cases of mental health issues, right? And and so you even had Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick uh, just last week say that one thing that we need to focus on in the next legislative session is more funding for mental health resources in rural Texas. You know, they have more resources to deal with it in Houston, and it's still a disaster. They don't have as much in the way of resources in places like, you know, Wichita Falls or Lubbock or Amarillo, little places in between, you know, little towns that a lot of folks have never even heard of where they believe me, they do have mental health issues. And there is and as I have covered this over the years, there's never, ever, ever enough in the way of resources for helping 
people who might have been in the same kind of situations that this young woman was. I'm glad that she's getting the help that she needs. And I think as a society, as you know, here we are in Texas and around the whole country, putting more into mental health resources is something that is not only the right thing to do, it's also been promised by our leadership. You remember after the shooting in Uvalde, what did Republican leadership in this state talk about over and over and over again? They talked about mental health issues. You heard that from uh, Governor Abbott. You heard that from Lieutenant Governor Patrick. You heard that from Senator John Cornyn and others. So it's time to put their money where their mouth is. And it is, it's, look, it's always been the case that there's not enough resources for these kinds of cases. So I won't dwell on it. Uh, but I, and I, again, I'm praying for her and I hope that you know people will leave her alone uh, about it. Um, but, and, and let me say it this way. I don't think there's any silver lining to it. If you have, uh, any experience personally, which I do with mental health crises in your family, in your home, it's horrific. It's scary. It's, uh, it's heartbreaking and anything that all of us can do to make the situation better is what we should do. What is ahead in this legislative session? I'm trying to figure this out because, and I was thinking about this from the standpoint of what uh, our Republican leaders promised on the campaign trail. Um, in the in the aftermath of Uvalde, they talked about the mental health issue, and I hope they will follow through on that. Um, but they didn't really say a lot about exactly what they're going to do. I, I went back and, and, and Maya, I went back and I reviewed uh, campaign commercials, stump speeches from Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick in particular, our top state officials, and they didn't promise a whole lot. One of the things they talked about is property taxes, and we'll get to that. On the issue of abortion, um, it seems that Republicans have done just about everything they can possibly do uh, to appease the base of the Republican Party. I mean, we have uh, a law in Texas now that, as we have pointed out here on the show many times, the, the law now says that abortion, that you know, terminating a pregnancy is illegal in this state, and there are no exceptions for rape, incest, um, or age. Uh, of, you know, say a nine or 10 year old girl who who might be in front of a doctor. The only exception, really, if you read the law and, and medical groups will back this up, um, they'll say the only exception is if there is a mother dying in front of the doctor. Um, so this is an issue that the Republican leadership didn't really talk about that much unless they were asked about it. There were there were interviews where Governor Abbott gave some answers that were uh, questionable. It's when you when 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 your uh, answer creates more questions than the original question, that's always an issue. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was on Spectrum News and was being interviewed by Karina Kling, uh, my friend over there, who asked him about, hey, what, what about this? What about putting in some exceptions for rape and incest in the state's sweeping abortion ban? Some of your Republican colleagues in the Senate have said that they want to revisit the abortion ban and make exceptions for rape two and have. incest. Two, two in, but two uh, critical senators. Absolutely. And I, by the way, I respect their view. Totally. Yeah. Well, and where do you stand on that? Do you think that this will be revisited at all? There are a lot of issues this session uh, where the senators are going to have to make some decisions and bring me their green card with their votes. And if there are votes there on a number of issues, I'll surely consider it. Uh, but right now, I've heard from two. And again, I respect the two senators who said that. Totally, I respect that. I don't know that there's a groundswell in the House for the Senate to do, any, to do anything. But I've, every session, I'm surprised by something. And so we'll see. So you're not saying no? Uh, I'm not saying no, but we'd have to see a real groundswell of 
Republicans in the House and Senate to say yes. Whenever Governor Patrick is not certain about something, my antenna go up because he's always just certain about everything. Uh, he, he has the most bold opinions. I mean, his his um, his slogan for years, going back to when he was running originally in 2014, was that he was going to be, you know, the, the most conservative lieutenant governor in the history of the state, that he was an authentic conservative, and he did things based on whether they were right or wrong. So when it comes to an issue like abortion, you would think he would just have a straightforward answer. Yes, we should do that, or no, we shouldn't. Instead, he, he backs up and he says, I'll wait and see what other people think about this first. So that tells me he's probably not going to move on this at all. That's just my guess. We'll all watch it unfold together. Um, on that issue, you've had, as Karina Kling pointed out, two Republican senators who said that they would be interested in maybe re, you know, revisiting that uh, and figuring out whether they could change the law, uh, which, of course, they can do. Um, it's interesting that people, I think, have this misunderstanding that it's some real difficult thing to change the law. It's not. They do it every two years in Texas. We just, you know, you, whatever the law is, whatever it says. Um, remember when you used to have to put two stickers on your car windshield and one was for the inspection and one was for the registration? They just changed the law on that. And now you only have one sticker, right? I mean, things that are right in front. My point is things that are right in front of your face. They can just change it at the at the Capitol. They can do that next year when it comes to this abortion ban. They could change it and say, hey, actually, for the doctors who have real concerns about this and Governor Abbott did acknowledge that the medical community has said that, hey, there are problems with this as far as what we're able to do. I have heard from uh, some uh, doctors who have been delivering babies in Texas for decades who said they're not going to do that anymore because of this law, because it complicates the, you know, the issues that come up uh, when they're helping a woman with uh, her pregnancy and the end of her pregnancy. Um, it, you, often, and this is what's so terrible about it, and it's terrible for, for a variety of reasons, having the government involved in things that are so personal. Um, one, thing, one thing that's a reality is when you have, um, an ex, when you have a, a case of fetal abnormality, and that's not a, a baby with Down syndrome, which is the way some uh, right-wing enforcement groups try to portray this. And I've seen it in uh, political advertising where a Republican office holder is being attacked for supporting um, exceptions for fetal abnormality. This has happened in the last two, four, six years in, in Republican primaries in Texas. The person would be attacked and those who were attacking them would have a baby with Down syndrome and basically suggest that the office holder would want that baby to be aborted. Or would allow for that baby to be aborted because they supported fetal abnormality exceptions. A fetal abnormality is not Down syndrome. A fetal abnormality is when, for example, the fetus is developing with no lungs or no brain stem uh, or organs are in the wrong place and the, 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 there's going to be suffering. And in those cases, the fetus won't survive outside the womb. Well, we have no exceptions. So a woman would have to carry that uh, that child to term, that and and that's so heartbreaking for the mothers. Usually, when a fetal abnormality is detected, it's so late in the pregnancy uh, that you have a woman who clearly wants the baby. That 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 you know, abortion and terminating the pregnancy has not even been on her mind. That she wants this, and 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 I've talked with the with couples who've gone through this. It's unbelievably heartbreaking. They've at that point they've thought of the names, you know, if it's a boy or if it's a girl or if they already know that they've chosen a name, uh, you know, they've got the they've got the room decorated at home, ready to go. Um, it, it really is a cruel thing 
to have uh, government involved on on a decision like that. So we'll so it's interesting that Patrick's saying we will wait and see. He was also asked about what's going to happen with all this extra money that we have in the bank. The, the state is going to have probably, and I've, I've pegged the estimate at around $45 billion extra dollars as a surplus, and I'm counting the state's economic stabilization fund, also known as the Rainy Day Fund, uh, which I think is going to have about $14 billion in its uh, re- general revenue surplus. looks like it's going to be uh, around 27 to $30 billion. Maya, if you think about how much money a billion dollars is, and, and I said to you, hey, my, here, here's a billion dollars. What's the first thing that What's the first thing that you would buy with your billion dollars? What, what What's the first three things that you would buy? Putting me on the spot, I have no idea. Just Just spitballing. I mean, maybe you'd buy a, a new house. Yeah, a house. Maybe yeah. Maybe a, maybe a couple of houses. Maybe three houses. <laughs> Is there a car that you've wanted? I'm not a car kind of gal. I would get you're not a car person. Yeah. You, oh, you just you just get, you don't you don't you don't need anything you don't need anything fancy. Just something that gets you where you're going. Okay. Well, let, let's say this: if someone was given a billion dollars and they bought three houses, and you know one of them was on, they have a beach house now and a lake house now, and, they, and now they've got uh, a house in Colorado, like a lot of Texans do. A lot of our a lot of our folks who like to go skiing in places like Breckenridge, Aspen, or whatever. Um, if you did those houses and you bought three or four cars, let's say you bought a, a car for each one of those houses, and, and I'm I'm telling you that okay, you still have nine hundred million dollars in change that you wouldn't even be you wouldn't even be approaching spending a billion dollars. So the state of Texas has like forty five billion extra dollars, and that's why Lieutenant Governor Patrick has said because of this just uh, situation where we have a mountain of money, we're awash in cash. He has said that legislators have a chance next year to help shape Texas for the next century, right? So what does he want to do with it? Well, he and the governor, Greg Abbott, have said they want to spend at least half of that on some form of property tax relief, which is where all of this starts to get really amorphous. When they talk about – and it's it's frustrating – it's frustrating for homeowners who are both Democrats and Republicans. It's frustrating for business owners because sometimes they get left out of it. If there's a homestead exemption increase, those business owners who say they run a, a refinery on the coast or they have a big box store like Walmart or uh, or HEB or or you know any of these big uh, retailers, they don't get anything out of it if there's a homestead exemption uh, increase. If the legislature was to put a lot of this money into funding school finance. Well, that would at least help contain property taxes for all of the people I just mentioned, plus those people who own homes. But what does Patrick expect to happen with that money? Uh, here's what he told Karina Kling. The way that uh, we set the budget, again, population inflation, based on the economic forecasting, we can increase our budget about 12.33%. That's to your budget, so that's 6% a year. I actually think inflation is higher than that, but uh, 6% a year. So... That would be about twelve and a half billion. So we could take half of that, six billion, easily. So if that's the number, if the number is all the twenty-seven, as I laid out in my press conference, we can only spend twelve and a half percent. I mean, twelve and a half billion of the twenty-seven. But we can do other constitutional amendments if the members want, and let the people vote. What that means is that they would have to have two thirds of both the House and Senate approve whatever the spending is that he's talking about. And again, it's sort of vague as to what he means they're going to do. When property taxes um, are debated at the legislature, there's always a, a gimmick or two 
that's thrown around. I remember a couple legislative sessions ago, uh, we're in the very middle of the session, the uh, the big proposal from the governor, lieutenant governor, and the speaker at the time, Dennis Bonin, uh, they said what they were going to do was increase sales taxes such that property taxes could be as they say, quote, bought down. Uh, in other words, the simple way to think about it is if you uh, increase one revenue stream, you're able to uh, decrease the other revenue stream. But that gets more complicated than that uh, because property taxes are collected locally in Texas. They're not collected by the state, but sales taxes are collected by the state. Uh, and the the blowback um, that those three, that Abbott, Patrick, and Bonin got from Republicans was kind of unbelievable. It was the only time that I can remember that Senator Paul Bettencourt, who is a listener of the show, I'm sure he appreciates the shout out. He's been the point man for the lieutenant governor on property taxes for years. I mean, going back about 20 years at this point, I remember uh, when Paul Bettencourt was first elected Harris County tax assessor collector, I think in 02, 03. Uh, and he and Patrick have talked about property taxes, fixing property taxes, reining in property taxes ever since. For the, for, the, for the last two decades. And so now it's like the, the dog caught the car and what are you guys actually going to do about it? And it has been, um, again, just sort of vague to Texans. If you ask people who own homes, what do you think about your property taxes? They'll say that they are terrible. And data backs that up. You know, if you look at the um, comparisons uh, on taxes uh, and what the tax burden is for people who live in Texas versus places like California, which our leadership trashes all the time, we're right up there as long as you count property taxes as well. And that, that's not to say they don't have high property taxes in, Cal in Cali. So there's a lot of people moving here who think that they're going to get here and their taxes are going to be low because they don't because they're not going to have an income tax. So many people are coming from states, including California, where they have an income tax and they can't wait to get a place where they're not going to have to put up with that. And then they get their property tax bill and say, well, I thought I thought this was all going to be cool. I thought I wasn't going to have to pay almost anything around here. And guess what? Uh, they they need me to pay for schools and roads and whatever else. Well, yes, Texas still is a society. You weren't moving to pre-war Afghanistan, even though sometimes and a Republican legislator said this the other day said, hey, with some of the social issues that our leadership has pushed, it, you know, it's it's not like we're the Taliban or something. We shouldn't be trying to be the Taliban. And I said, well, we have aspirations, you know, given some of the things that we're doing. Uh, Karina Klang also asked Patrick about whether he's at odds with Governor Abbott on the electricity grid. And this has been a fascinating split. Remember, Governor Abbott said on the campaign trail, and after the legislative sessions that uh, that everything that needed to be done when it came to the grid was done. So in, in Abbott's estimation, it's fixed. We're good to go. Nothing needs to happen with that. Now, some people still have PTSD from what happened during the winter storm. I, I know it. <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday. Kind of unbelievable. But I think the um, the political calculation on that uh, by some Democrats to really count on that as a campaign issue didn't really materialize. But a lot of people still you know, are, are not happy about it. And here's the evidence. Anytime you see, we'll, we'll go through the winter here. And when you see that there might be a freeze warning, what you will notice at the, and we saw this last year, what you will notice is people at the grocery store won't just be uh, preparing for uh, a cold snap. They'll be preparing for a blackout during a cold snap because people remember it, right? So Patrick is the one of the two out of Patrick and Abbott who says that we have got to do more when it comes to the grid. I'm not going to speak for the governor. We did a very good job with Senate Bill 2 and 3 last time mm -hmm. with the reforms. And I think you could argue the fact that we were able to get through the hottest summer or the hottest summers ever, at least hottest month of August, and we were able to maintain the grid. Uh, I think that that says we did make an improvement. 
fix for now, but we need to fix it for ever. On this issue, the lieutenant governor has been on the opposite side of not just the governor, but also the Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, who is expected to win again uh, the uh, the opportunity to preside over the Texas House in 2023. So if you have Patrick at odds with the governor and Patrick at odds with the Speaker over what to do, and we'll, we'll see how this plays out and what Patrick actually proposes. Um, but if he's at odds with either one of them, whatever he wants isn't going to happen. As former Speaker Strauss used to say, uh, the Republican from San Antonio, Joe Strauss would say, if the House and Senate don't agree on a thing, that thing doesn't happen, whatever it is. And when the uh, legislature was debating what to do in the wake of the winter storm, you might remember that uh, Governor Patrick was interested in something called repricing of the electricity market, which would have meant billions of dollars moving uh, from some pockets into other pockets. Uh, There were uh, so many people who made off like bandits during the winter storm. Um, Kelsey Warren, who was uh, criticized by Beto O'Rourke over and over again, uh, was sued, or excuse me, sued Beto O'Rourke over it saying that there was uh, defamation. Um, But I was trying to figure out where O'Rourke was wrong about any of it. Uh, He was just laying out what what was publicly reported about how much money, the billions of dollars in windfall profits that went in the direction of energy transfer partners at the time of the winter storm while 700 people at least were dying in their homes. And there was a hearing in the Texas Senate that I had never seen anything like this. It was remarkable. Um, and I don't think it had, um, and check me on this. I know some of the legislative veterans might correct me. I don't think the Lieutenant governor, no matter who it was, has ever walked into a hearing to question witnesses. Uh, maybe Bob Bullock did that. I'm not sure. They, again, somebody will tell me, um, but I had never seen it. During a hearing, you had the the head of the Public Utilities Commission testifying, and Patrick walked in, sat down where a senator would normally sit, and started grilling him about why the PUC behaved the way they did and why ERCOT you know, behaved, behaved the way they did during the winter storm um, when it came to trying to keep the lights on around the state. And Patrick was trying to figure out why the uh, Public Utilities Commission didn't just let the market be the market. Instead of driving prices through the roof, which is what they did, and when you have a market that's completely deregulated, the way to incentivize more electricity on the grid in the moment is to let the price go through the roof, right? But that will get the generation to happen. Um, And so Patrick wanted to know, why weren't you just letting the market be the market? And the head of the PUC says, because people were dying in their homes and I had lost faith in the market. That's why. It It was real combat in real time. Uh, during that disaster. And so what, whatever they do next, I think uh, Patrick's going to be pushing for more electricity generation in Texas. He has acknowledged the need to have more uh, renewable energy in Texas, which, look, we're a leader on that. Um, you know, we're an oil and gas state, proudly an oil and gas state, uh, but we also lead the country in wind and solar. Uh, what uh, what Patrick has said that, and this is, I think, a little bit of uh, a different take from him. Previously, he and other Republicans have badmouthed, uh, you know, wind and solar renewables as as unreliable. That uh, that they probably shouldn't even be a, a part of our uh, fuel mix for our grid. Um, but what Patrick said more recently was, yeah, those things can be good, but we need the playing field to be, you know, even between oil and gas and wind and solar. So we'll see what they come up with. The Texas House Democratic Caucus this week chose their leadership. And the person who won the chairmanship is someone I've known for about 20 years. Trey Martinez Fisher from San Antonio, a firebrand, a progressive Latino, um, who 
has in the past chaired the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus. He's been the point man for Democrats in the past on redistricting, um, which, of course, is the most bitter partisan thing that is done at the Texas Capitol. Um, it's interesting. And this is where this is where uh, Democrats and Republicans lose. And I think Democrats lose more people on this uh, just because it's it's something that they're fighting against. But it doesn't matter as much in people's uh, you know immediate life is on redistricting. They will fight the fights. They will, uh, you know, the break quorum over this. Back in 2003, there was a quorum break where, and of course, we saw that last year with the big elections bill. The Democrats fled to Washington. Right before they fled to Washington, there apparently had been some sort of a uh, a negotiation between Republicans and Democrats to try to hammer out a bill uh, that would change Texas election laws such that Democrats wouldn't vote for it, but that they would not leave town over it. And that didn't work out. So so the Democrats left for some of them never came back. Some of them came back after about a month. I visited the Democrats in Washington last year for just one day, and it was right at the beginning of their quorum break. And when I left the hotel where they were staying, which was not a luxury resort, as had been portrayed by some people, the Republicans were saying, oh, the Democrats need to be here in Austin doing their jobs. Instead, they're on this luxury vacation in Washington. That hotel was kind of a dump. I'm here to tell you. Um, when I left... The, the Democrats there, after seeing the way that they were already getting agitated with each other, I thought they have about enough. They, they've got enough gas in the tank for about two weeks of this and they'll be back. But some of them never set foot on the House floor again last year. I'm trying to remember if Trey Martinez Fisher came back to the House after breaking quorum in, in Washington. And he might correct me. I don't think that he did. Um, there were some Democrats who said that, look, we should just never go back. Uh, because Republicans are steamrolling us on everything. of That, of course, is not pragmatic. Um, Martinez Fisher has a long history of being really sort of over the top in his language about Republicans. And so this has people saying, hey, OK, this is going to be a lot of fun during the legislative session because the Democrats did have a chairman who was a little more of a moderate sort of guy. Uh, Chris Turner from Arlington, Texas, moderate Democrat, somebody who would work well with Republicans, was more, more of a collaborative uh, kind of style. He had more of a collaborative kind of style. Um, not so much for TMF, as he's called around the Capitol. Here, and this is, what I, this is what came to mind. I was thinking about eight years ago. This was at the uh, Texas Democratic Party Convention uh, in 2014. This was in Dallas, if I remember correctly. I, was, I know I was standing there near the stage when he said it. And even with the Democratic crowd, I, it sound, and you can hear the crowd here in what Maya is about to play for you. Even with the Democrats, and these are the hardcore Democrats, you can hear that the crowd at first maybe thinks he's going a little too far with what he's saying about Republicans. Republicans are running scared of the new Texas. Did any of you see the new Texas represented at the Republican convention a couple weeks back? I didn't either. And from what I read in their platform, Latinos weren't even allowed in the convention hall. So I thought to myself, who needs La Migra when you have the GOP? Wait a minute, GOP. That should stand for gringos y otros pendejos. Overwhelmingly a positive reaction from the Democratic crowd. But I remember seeing some faces there that night in Dallas, uh, sort of uh, concerned <laughs> that that maybe that language is a little over the top. Well, that's the new leader of the of the Texas Democratic caucus uh, in the House. And I, I think a few things about this. And this is this is this is um, 
quite an evolution uh, in the way that the Texas House works. Uh, when Speaker Joe Strauss was there for 10 years, he had a little bit more of a collaborative um, attitude toward Democrats. And I think there was, and I don't think this is, what, this is my characterization. I don't think uh, Democrats or Republicans would necessarily say this on the record, maybe privately. They would say, look, there's always been an understanding in Texas government that what you have to do is two things. You have to do the things that are political in nature because all of these politicians run in primaries, whether they are Democrats or Republicans, but then they also need to do things that are good for Texas, that they need to, that imagine this, they need to govern. They need to do things that are good for business in the state, things that are good for public education in the state, things that are good for, for issues like we talked about earlier with mental health and things like that. Um, infrastructure, huge. I mean, we, we still have more than a thousand people moving to Texas every day of the week. And they're moving to places where there's not enough roads. The public uh, schools uh, need more resources if they're going to be able to be, you know, be able to absorb that population, et cetera. And so the legislature has to have some bandwidth for taking care of those things that are just sort of the bread and butter things, the things that that we all need um, and that we that we need for a state of 31 million people across 254 counties and two time zones. We have unique challenges here. We have an economy larger than Russia. You know, when the uh, when the leadership here brags about that, it's worth pointing out that Russia kind of sucks. I mean, what is their economy? It's, it's, you know, natural gas and potato vodka, right? I mean, we our economy is, is pretty diversified compared to what they have in in Russia. Uh, did you know in Russia, I didn't realize this. It's a giant landmass, right? Did you realize that Russia is so big? that it spans 11 time zones. We we span three. I guess we span four, five, whatever it is, if you get out to Hawaii, but but you get it. We're nothing the size of that. But what do they have there? Nothing. It's uh, it's wild to me. So if you think about, back to the legislature, I never lose my place, Maya. It, when it comes to the legislature, <clears throat> they have to have the bandwidth to do basically two operate on two tracks. Let me put it this way. To do the political things they need to do to be reelected, but then also to do the things that are good for Texas. So I was talking with a senior Democrat about this uh, last week who said, look, there was always sort of an understanding that, hey, I know Republicans have to do, you know, three or four things that that the bills are going to pass that are basically for their primaries, whatever it is about abortion that they're going to do, whatever it is about immigration that they're going to do, whatever it is about guns that they're going to do and something else, whatever it is. And and I think there's a recognition among veteran Democrats that, hey, Republicans will do those things for their primaries and they would like to see those things just handled and then go on with the governance of the state. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean that those Democrats are going to vote for those things. It doesn't mean the Democrats aren't going to say that those things are terrible and make their arguments against them. But there's also a recognition that, hey, they're in the minority. And so that's how it works. When you're in the minority, if you want a seat at the table, um, you have to, it's not It's not that you compromise on those issues, um, but you have to at least recognize that there's a political reality for both parties. And here's a dirty little secret. When Republicans pass bills on some of those things I mentioned, like abortion and guns and all those red meat things, it helps Democrats in their primaries to vote against them, right? It, I mean, they, they can say we fought against this and uh, and and you know and blast the Republicans for having passed the stuff. Um, we'll see what this looks like with Trey Martinez Fisher at the head of the Democratic Caucus. Um, Trey is not just—I'm calling him Trey because he has been a friend for about 20 years. Trey is not somebody 
who is only a protester. He has worked with Republicans when it when he felt it was necessary. I'll give you an example from last year. When the Democrats fled to Washington and Trey Martinez Fisher was among those who was just blasting any Democrats who would return to quote unquote work with Republicans, it was revealed during the redistricting special session that Trey Martinez Fisher had requested of the Republican chair of the redistricting committee in the Senate to change one of the congressional districts that extends down to San Antonio. And then the speculation was, and, and the way we found out about that was that the Republican chair of redistricting, Joan Huffman from Houston, she just said it on the floor of the Senate. She said, oh, yeah, we changed this district, this congressional district a little – we made it a little different at the request of Trey Martinez Fisher. Oh, by the way, he happens to live in that area and he might be considering running for Congress. And then there was some speculation about whether he was going to run for Congress. So worked for, with Republicans on that. When uh, former Speaker Dennis Bonin was rounding up the votes to be able to become the speaker in the first place, uh, going back to 2018 into the 2019 session – Trey Martinez Fisher made it a point, and I think this was wise, he made it a point to mentor the um, 12 new uh, freshman Democrats who had just been elected to the Texas House. And part of that, as, as I understood it, was to help round up votes for the guy who was going to be the Republican speaker, Dennis Bonin. These, these freshman Democrats coming in, they don't really know how all that works with, you know, with Democrats voting for the Republican speaker. And the, look, th this is a big reason that you do have, and I've addressed this before, a big reason you do have power sharing in the Texas House is because you'll have a Republican speaker that almost all of the members will vote for. I think we're on track to have a Republican speaker in Dade Phelan who will uh, only be opposed by six members of the Texas House out of 150 on the floor. You'll have some Republicans who say he's not conservative enough. What they're basing that on is pretty bogus, and I'll talk about that in future shows. We'll, we'll get into it, I'm sure, during the legislative session when there are some over-the-top speeches about how the liberals are running Austin, which is crazy. It's really unbelievable, but we'll cover it all for you. Um, this session, I think, is going to be sort of, un, in, in a lot of ways, unpredictable because, as I said, Abbott and Patrick didn't promise all that much of, of exactly what they're going to do. And so we don't really know after Governor Abbott defeated Beto O'Rourke as handily as he did. Um, we don't really know what he's going to do with that political capital. You know, is he running for president? I don't know. We'll be able to we'll be able to see outlines of the answer to that question when Abbott starts to lay out his priorities for the legislature. If it's a, if he goes for blood and it's a lot of red meat stuff. Well, maybe, you know, I mean, but remember, whatever, um, whatever he does, if if he's uh, if he's not, you know, declaring that he's going to retire from politics, then he needs an insurance policy for his next primary as well. And as I always say, this is a primary state. That's what that's actually that's Jeremy's um, his paraphrase of what I say. What I say is that the Republican primary in Texas is among the most consequential elections on earth that almost nobody votes in. And after this year. It's still true. All right. If this is your, how was that, Maya? That was a solo flight. All right. I get the thumbs up. She gave me an okay instead of a thumbs up. Um, now I'm, now I'm worried. Oh, there's the thumbs up. I was worried for a second. It has been your favorite show in 2022. It's going to continue to be in 2023. And so look, if you're not already subscribed, you have got to do that on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. I was, uh, there's, there's a different version of Spotify in Europe that was called Deezer or something. Somebody was sending me a message about that the other day. They were telling me, y'all need to be on whatever the European version of Spotify is. And I told uh, this person who was 
sending me a message from London or wherever. I said, well, you, why don't you handle that? Why don't you suggest that it be on whatever that is? <laughs> and tell three of your friends in London about it. Um, subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.